know, is it like a big 90s thing just to get the lady to shave her head? Something about Demi Moore mm-hmm. in uh, the G.I. Jane movie. And uh, I think there's a couple other instances. It seemed like Natalie Portman, but that was later. Yeah, that's shaved that's, her uh, head. Yeah, that's uh, 2005. Yeah, but is you're right, like, though. Is casty kind of stuff or like just giving mm-hmm. for tickets? People just want to see the bald lady? I think it's good for marketing, probably, right? Like, you know, the, the, the head shaving comes in, you know, pre-production. But, you know, you pitch the movie star with, hey, you'll get to shave your head. It'll get the people talking. You get to do a new look. This is my studio producer voice, obviously. I see. Yes. It's the lasting impact of Sinead O'Connor in the early 90s. Um, hey, nothing compares to you, man. I think that it, it probably yeah, had no, to be. That's, that's fair. It what it had to be the next step in early '90s cinematic feminism that the tough woman has to shave her head to lose her yeah, locks I, I, of I do, beauty. I do feel like some raw, raw, you know, lady power going on there too. But I also think it's uh, marketing in terms of like this is how deep they're going in the role or whatever, how committed they are to the performance. Yeah, yeah. Except, uh, yeah, they're always actors. like real fluffy movies. Yeah. They're always fluffy movies, and yeah, it is yeah. kind of this weird 90s feminism, right, where it's like male actors gain or lose a bunch of weight. Gals, they cut their hair off, heaven forbid. If something about action movies, you know, I guess a, a woman couldn't star in an action film without uh, just buzzing it all off. Yeah. Well, I mean, Sarah Connor saved her hair, so I think that's worth noting. Mm, you know what? You're right. She's got that power pony going on. Yeah. Then that, that I will take you the power pony. Hello, everybody. Welcome again <laughs> to the Good Track Donner cast. We gather around a table and we discuss the films you'll never discuss in a film studies course. And we're doing our December marathon, which is part three is part de, uh, which is the second time we've done third uh, entries in trilogies. And this week's film is David Fincher's Alien 3 or Alien Cubed. And so I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. And I am uh, uh, Planet Fury Inmate 137 uh, Dalton, reporting for my uh, community service. And so I want to roll all the way back into the ancient annals of good trash genre cast, in the lore, if you will, um, to think about the backstory and the, uh, the franchise and the world building that we've created here at the good trash genre cast. Because uh, way back when we once upon a time had a rule, it was called the Fincher Rule, in which Dalton didn't get to speak about Fincher. And so um, everybody say bye to Dalton because well, uh, we're about to talk about this David Fincher movie and you're not allowed to speak. That, that rule was necessary because when we started this podcast, I was in my early 20s and was a white man from the suburbs. Uh, and so, yeah, I uh, only knew how to talk Did about you talk about Fight Club a lot. Well, um, you know, maybe once or twice. I might have written a paper about it. Uh, I might have once read or part twice of per paper. episode, you mean? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, look, I'm going to make it up to our listeners by being a real dickhead to David Fincher for the next hour. I thought you were going to say about you're going to be real quiet for about an hour, but I guess that works, too. (laughs) Well, you know, we talked about the vows, you know, that the prisoners make in this movie. And, you know, silence or celibacy, you have your choices. Um, Go. (laughs) (laughs) We all took silence. How odd. <laughs> Nicely played. Uh, in case you're turning into the Good Trash Honorcast for the very first time, we don't want to warn you about a couple things. This is not a review show. It's an analysis show. And that does mean that there are going to be spoilers. And we are going to talk about how this movie ends and how it fits in the whole Alien franchise. We're probably going to spoil some of the other Alien movies, including Prometheus and Alien Convent. I mean, Covenant. I still want Alien Convent with the Alien versus Nuns and the Nuns kill the Alien, but they haven't made it yet. But I anyways, thought the Aliens were um, Nuns. The A O. Okay, hold hold on though. That, but that like, got weird. Okay, but if Prometheus three is about a nun planet, that's some real fun symmetry with Alien three being about a uh, prison planet. Just oh, you know, there is something there. Gone full circle. But anyway, uh, we are going to spoil the movie. That is the point I was trying to make there for a moment. But we're going to give you the briefest of reprieves at the first of the show. So we'll have a synopsis, which will be spoiler free. We'll have our quick thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, which are generally spoiler free. We're going to play a little game called Expanding the Syllabus, where we imagine teaching this movie in a class and talk about what other movies or books or whatever we might use to teach that class and what that class is all about. And that's going to be spoiler moderate. And then once we get down to business, that's when we drop all the hot lead. And you find out all the nitty-gritty details and all spoiler bets are off. So without a further ado, you have been warned. So that being said, Arthur, do you have a synopsis for us today? Yeah, I happen to rustle something up. 
Um, did, did, oh, I could rustle up some grub? rustling over here. Hmm? Please what? don't. Following <laughs> the events of Aliens, Alien 3, or Alien Cubed as we've come to call it, picks up in media ray as the crew are in stasis on the Sulaco. After an incident occurs, the ship crashes on Fury 161. A prison settlement ran with an all-male skeleton crew. Ripley, the sole survivor, is concerned that an alien may be involved. She works with the medical officer, Jonathan Clemens, to try and understand why the crash occurred, and if they're alone. That is all what the movie's about. Very good, very good. Uh, I watched this movie a bunch in the 90s, and uh, so I'm excited to hear your thoughts on the movie. I'm going to shoot to you first, Dalton. What is your quick thumbs-up, thumbs-down review of Alien Cubed? Quick. Well, unfortunately, I will not be able to make that thumbs up thumbs down quick because i uh, am an idiot and watched both cuts of this movie in one weekend uh for reasons that i, I hope will become apparent as we uh, continue this episode uh, I, I too uh, watched this movie quite a bit growing up um basically everybody i knew had the alien quadrilogy on vhs or dvd uh as a youth and because three and four uh existed in the 90s i was far more interested uh in those for some reason uh you know child brains are weird that way uh, also, I had seen one and two quite a bit because my cousin liked them. Uh, so much like Dustin, I, I remember liking Alien 3 a lot. And as an adult, I realized it's probably just because uh, all the all the shaved heads was really doing it for me. Just aesthetically, big fan. Lots uh, More shaved head movies. Uh, big, big into it. Uh, I agree with Dustin on the nun movie thing. Um, yeah, shaved heads are just a fun aesthetic and Sigourney Weaver uh, really rocks it. I don't know. And I guess I thought the idea of a uh, quadrupedal alien was pretty tight. Uh Watching both cuts of this movie in one weekend, it becomes very apparent that no matter how you uh, slice up the print, uh, it's, this is the worst Alien movie by a, 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 far, a wide margin. And I'm including Prometheus uh, and Alien Covenant in that. I'm not including the AVP movies uh, because, I, you know, those are their own thing. I, I don't really count those with uh, either uh, of the two franchises that uh, burst with them. Um, but yeah, this is not a good movie, uh, unfortunately. I will say that I think the assembly cut is is pretty good. I, I see why people kind of go to bat for it. Um, I think it does really round out the first act. It also removes the dog death. Uh, so, uh, you know, content warning there, listener uh, and potential Alien 3 viewer. Uh, the theatrical cut does have a really unpleasant uh, German Shepherd birthing the uh, alien sequence. That's, uh, uh, you know credit to the franchise i guess maybe one of the most unpleasant uh alien birthing scenes uh the assembly cut goes for a much more uh mild but also way more filled with sexual imagery uh bovine situation uh, it's a it's a, a livestock infestation in the assembly cut and if you're wondering why i keep calling it assembly as opposed to director uh when they put the alien quadrilogy together and they did you know the alien and aliens extended cuts uh, fincher had no interest in doing that um so one of the producers took some of his production notes and a bunch of unused footage and tried to piece it together uh, i did not do a, a you know a, a rundown of exactly what the differences are listener uh, they mostly are constrained to the first act as far as i could tell i think there might be some longer sequences maybe in the middle but basically from the time the alien shows up in earnest uh, it, it's pretty much the same movie as far as i could tell although uh, you know i might be wrong i i will say that it is uh especially in the assembly cut much more apparent that it's a fincher movie you know the dude knew what he was about right away um, and I, you know, I do have some respect for that. And by what he was about, I mean, uh, you know, camera work wise, uh, which is mostly ripping off stalker, which we talked about last week. Um, you know, it works, it looks cool. It looks compelling. And, you know, he, he takes that nine inch nails music video aesthetic and drafts it onto the alien franchise. And, you know, by and large, I, I think aesthetically this movie works unless we're talking about the CGI model for the alien, in which case, it's bad. It's so bad that it hurt my eyeballs to look at, which, you know, I'm, I'm usually pretty forgiving of, of early CGI effects. We, you know, we have fun at their expense on the show sometimes, but I think all of us kind of uh, have some fondness for, for bad CGI. And uh, the compositing in this film, just, man, it's no good. Uh, it really it feels, any anytime there's a wide shot of the, the runner alien, I think is what it's officially called uh, in the canon, it just, it looks no good. Uh, and unfortunately, th that comes at the expense of people doing good work. Um, I think the supporting cast here is truly stellar. I mean, it is a murderer's row. Uh, you got Charles S. Dutton, Charles Dance, uh, 
you know, kind of rounding out the main cast with Sigourney Weaver. And then, of course, Lance Henriksen comes back. Uh, but then, you know, there's a ton of character actors sprinkled throughout um, the prisoners, including uh, Holt McCallany. Uh, I'm not sure how you say his name, but uh, you, he's the Robert Paulson guy from Fight Club and then uh, um, one of the leads in Mindhunter. So, you know. Uh, David Fincher takes care of his friends, I guess, and that's nice to learn, but obviously I'm talking around the movie, and that's because it's just not very good. Um, you know, the moments that work best are pretty much cribbed wholesale from Jurassic Park. Um, again, put through an alien filter and a Nine Inch Nails filter, uh, and with the gore dialed way up. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of beats uh, that, that definitely feel uh, like they harken back. Uh, to Jurassic Park just a few years earlier. Uh, and again, um, I guess actually, no, the, the next year, I guess. So to be, I guess maybe I should be a little bit more kind to Alien 3 and it's trailblazing. Uh, but I got massive Jurassic Park vibes uh, from quite a few of the scares in this movie. Um, and for some reason, I was thinking this was a 95 film when I was watching it. Uh, I don't know. <clears throat> I just don't think there's much there there. And it's really unfortunate. Uh, because there are some really good ideas here. You know, I, I think the problem is Alien 3, and we'll get into this more in analysis, I'm sure, Alien 3 takes the sexual assault and sexual violence subtext of the first two Alien films uh, and makes it explicitly part of the text, and it just doesn't work. And I think that's largely, you know, uh, a fault of production and meddling and, you know, bad screenplay that kept getting rewritten. Like, there's there's all manner of nightmare story behind the production of this film so much so that it's got a documentary so you, you can't really lay the failures at any one person's feet uh but that said <laughs> the assembly cut which gets a, a little bit more uh, of david fincher in there sure does have a lot of guys talking about how cool it is to be mean to women uh and, and I, again it doesn't seem like the film is on those guys side but you know it just is a little bit more than we need uh, especially when we do have great moments where um, charles s dutton does try to kind of like uh, say the quiet part of the film out loud in the, that one cafeteria scene. Um, I, again, these moments just don't work, and I'll go ahead and sum all of this up with uh, what friend of the show Kirsten Thurkelson had to say after we uh, we streamed this over Discord. Uh, she she made the point, you know, Ripley is uh, kind of unquestionably a feminist icon. So to put an attempted rape scene in an alien movie just kind of goes to show you that nobody involved really gave a shit what women thought about the movie. Uh, and I think that's an interesting take. You know, it, we do have Sigourney here as a, with a producer credit. Uh, I think she's co-producer credit maybe. Um, but, you know, that's often uh, a vanity title to make sure that you can justify an actor's big paycheck. That doesn't always mean the actor gets to call a lot of shots, especially if it's not a producer credit proper. So uh, hard to say where things went wrong. It's just not good. I will say that that fan death, that's pretty tight. I like that. Uh, more of that. Uh, less of some of the other stuff. Um, uh, you know, we don't necessarily need a toxic waste disposal sign directly above the inmates. You know what I mean? Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Well, thank you very much for those words, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What do you say, Arthur? Do you like Alien Cubed? No. Um, <laughs> I didn't. Uh, I, You know, I was really wanted to give it a chance because I've heard a lot of, you know, especially in the last few years, I think uh, it's kind of had this slight i think resurgence in popularity at least as something of a positive cult film uh and and i i love it you know i love alien i aliens is fun um i prometheus uh covenant i really dig quite a bit uh so i you know i came into this willing to give it a chance because it's a franchise i really do enjoy quite a bit and, and just really love and i love fincher um and so i was really fascinated to see what this is uh, the look, the design, the sets, they're all great. Like Dalton said, it, it's early on that you can kind of trademark Fincher's look and style uh, visually. Um, and I, I think it looks great. I think the sets look great. I think the, the production design looks great. Uh, I, I really dig all of that. You know, some shoddy effects aside, I, I think the film's world looks really good. Um, you know, and that look, that nihilism is there from the start, uh, which is, you know, another one of his trademarks, I think. Uh, especially early on. And so uh, that that all lays the groundwork for, I think, a very interesting film. And I think the first 40 minutes of this uh, with Weaver and Char uh, Charles Dance is really interesting. All this character stuff, uh, this kind of her trying to find some normalcy and have a connection. And, you know, she's had these 
traumatic like 60 years sparsed out over like five days uh which is you know weird because of stasis but um i I think that's really interesting when they just have those moments together and those scenes together and they play off of each other very well i think Uh, and i like all of that about the film but once it devolves into this this cat and mouse game with the alien and them trying to Stop the alien. It's just so uninteresting and uninspired. Um, so I, I really lost interest in the back half of this film because I just didn't care. Uh, uh, we've seen cat and mouse stuff play out in these type of movies. And this one just doesn't do anything interesting with it. When Lance Henriksen does show up um, both times, I think it's really you know a fascinating bit. And I think there are some good ideas here uh, throughout, but I just don't think they come to fruition in a way uh, that inspires much hope in me to rewatch this or even want to revisit, you know, the assembly cut uh, because, you know, Dalton, you mentioned it adds stuff, but it adds 40 minutes to the film and that's a big chunk of time to sit through some of this junk again. So I, I don't think I could do it. Not, not right away. I, I think I would have to give myself some time and space and distance. Um, yeah. For, for whatever it's worth, you do get uh, a little bit more of the Charles dance and Sigourney stuff, which yeah, Charles dance is a big old cutie in this film. So yeah, I, th- I think the the one benefit of the assembly cut is there's more of some of the best stuff in the movie. Well, that's fair. Uh, and I, I do appreciate them getting rid of the dog stuff. That's just so annoying now because every horror film tries to do it. And it's just so, so cheap and overdone and rarely done well. Um, so I, I appreciate them taking that out of the assembly cut. I wish they would have taken it out of the theatrical cut. Um, and it does feel like a nod to the thing. I, I, I think so. Um, let me see. Oh, the other thing, uh, to Dalton's point about Sigourney's, uh, producing credit, uh, from what I understand, she had pretty substantial creative, uh, freedom in, in making some decisions on scripts and things like that. So I, I do think that's quite interesting how that all played out huh. and what that looks like after Fincher's involvement, which is obviously another wrench in this. I mean, this is a movie not only went through production issues once Fincher was on board, but leading into Fincher's involvement, there was, you know, multiple scripts being written, multiple people being involved. They wanted to get Ridley back. Ridley didn't want to do it or couldn't do it. So they had to get this guy. He couldn't do it. The, they were trying to get the, uh, the director from Elm street three or four. I can't remember. Um, but he wasn't able to do it or he had an idea and it was way too wacky. He wanted them to invade earth and do a whole thing that way. And, uh, you know, so finally we get to, was it William Golding or Goldman here and somebody else writing the script, I believe on the final, final credit. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, from what I understand, Sigourney had pretty substantial uh, pool that she wanted them to be the ones that wrote the script or had that final say on the script. But I think Fincher comes in, does some more work on the script. So you, you don't know where any of that lands, but from what I understand, she did have some pretty substantial pool at some points in the production. So I, I think all that is interesting in how it plays out as well. Uh, overall, though, this is not a film I recommend. Uh, sadly, I think I should have just, you know, this is the first time I've seen it. And I, I wish I'd kept it in the dark. I, I really do think uh, some things are better left buried. Sometimes dead <laughs> is better. All right. The Pet Cemetery review coming to you straight from uh, Dr. Reverend Arthur Gordon. So you know what happens to that dead dog now. Uh, thank you very much for uh, that uh, review. I am warmer i think than my friends uh, i don't think i'm quite warm but i think i'm warmer if that makes sense because yeah. honestly you give me that nine inch nails aesthetic in an alien movie you've kind of got me that I, that's something i'm begging for to uh to start with something i need before i ever know i need it and so i enjoy that a lot about it i do think those last scenes uh, that labyrinth of various corridors at the end of the film is really, really exciting and interesting. And uh, though the, it doesn't logically make a whole lot of sense how the whole thing works, that's kind of the joke of it. And uh, that, you know, the actors themselves are confused as we are, as we watch. And so it's a good way of making a, a messy bit of script writing into something that works formalistically for me. And uh, so I enjoy that amped up, uh, energy that is there uh yeah again getting there and getting to the actual alien stuff and the scares it is a little long um i i feel like it just needs some trimming 
as a movie uh and i i could stand for i could stand for the 90 minute version of this movie for sure yeah i think so. uh, yeah. is uh because it does just take a long time for us to be like okay Sigourney Weaver's on a planet. She's just escaped from the aliens. Well, she clearly brought one with her. Everybody knows that. So let's get to it, right? And then finally, once we kind of get to it, I mean, one of the moments that happens is a stupid gag where uh, a leadership figure is giving something of a speech and is snatched mid-speech. I Uh, mean... Yes, yes. the Samuel Jackson and Deep blue sea kill uh we all love it we all know it it's i mean uh, again you're like oh you're going to die fool i mean and that's all you're thinking and like okay and then he dies uh it's it's so tell i don't even feel like it's spoiler to even say it because the minute you see the guy start talking like oh you're going to die and he does and uh, so i mean there, there are some missteps here and there uh there is some again uh the rape scene or attempted rape scene is a a misstep a mistaken move there but aesthetically, it looks cool. Uh, the The scares are real. Again, the last hour of the movie, I think, is pretty solid. It's just that we need to get there quicker is my overall uh, critique of the film. So, But otherwise, I mean, it's fun. I still think it's fun to watch. I'd watch it again. Uh, so that's where I think I'm a little warmer than my co-hosts there. So there you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts on uh, review of uh, the film Alien Cubed or Alien 3. You know, if you don't know how math works. So uh, that being said, let's move on to our little exercise, which is expanding the syllabus. In expanding the syllabus, we pretend like we're playing, uh, we're teaching a college class. And the college class requires a module or part of the class to include Alien 3. What is the class and what other films would you be using to augment? Is it part of a module? Is it part of an individual class period? Or is it part of an entire course that you might build around films of the ilk of Alien 3. And so that is the challenge that has been laid down before us all. And so I now drop the gauntlet at the feet of Arthur Gordon to hear your syllabus, my friend. I think they called it Alien 3, like with the cubed, because it's exponentially worse than the others. That's my new working uh, hypothesis. Um, I think my course uh, is going to be on troubled productions. I'm, I'm really fascinated by this idea of Studio intervention and director's cuts and when that all gets tossed around and, you know, bandied about for a few extra bucks on a DVD sale. Uh, and it's just a fascinating discussion, especially in light of stuff like the Snyder cut, um, which is a whole, you know, thing. Um, and, and Sonic and stuff like that, you know, this kind of the impact of different people on the creative process. And so I think I'd talk about Trouble Productions and I think maybe inside of a maybe even like a classical Hollywood course where we're discussing the classical method and how studio production works. And I think I'd fit it into that. Um, And so I'd probably outline and start with a discussion of auteurism because I think anybody who really invests and passionately discourses with director's cuts and extended cuts and studio interference have to ascribe to the auteurist theory, uh, even if they don't realize it. Um, because they're so fascinated that, you know, the director's being held back and is being cut down by the knees by the studio and people keep interfering in his vision. And I I think outlining auteurism is important and then debunking auteurism as best you can in like 90% of the cases, right? I mean, we've talked at length over this eight years of this show about auteurism. Uh, And and so I, I think introducing that and laying that definition out at the beginning of the course or this section of the course would be very important. And then from there, we'd get into a little bit of production history. We'd talk about the role of the writer, the producer, executive producers. We'd talk about test audiences and test screenings. And we'd talk about the studio executives. We'd talk about stuff like Final Cut control and creative controls and these writers and contracts that allow actors to have say on things. You know, how their image is protected or um, how they get to choose who's catering the, the table. I don't know. Um, but all those things kind of factor into this and, you know, people get so wrapped up in it's the director's vision. They're the author. There are so many other minuscule factors that can have that kind of butterfly effect on a production. And so I, I want to kind of make that transparent, uh, and, and really highlight those in the shadows players and, and creatives that are involved in the process at, at every stage of production, uh, pre shooting post 
distribution, you know, all of that kind of factors into it. Um, and then I want to play with some uh, troubled productions that had tumultuous sets or tumultuous backgrounds. And there are a bevy that you could choose from, but these are ones that had those issues but have become critically acclaimed. And so the three screenings I would pick in, in association with you know, Alien 3 is uh, Casablanca, which was kind of notoriously uh, rewritten uh, on the day of the set. They didn't, you know, I don't think had a finished script, so there was constant rewrites, constantly new stuff being added or taken away. Uh, so I want to talk about Casablanca and the kind of fluctuation of that production. Uh, Jaws uh, is another one. I've, I've heard stories of troubled production here uh, and, you know, talk about Spielberg's uh, big break and the rise of the blockbuster and, you know, how Jaws walked away. I'm probably better for it. Um, and then last week's film itself, Stalker, which also had a very notoriously uh, troubled production, I think, kind of tying into that and working outside of the American studio system. I think that's kind of interesting as well. And looking at a, uh, I believe, governmentally financed film and see what that looks like. Additionally, uh, on top of all of that, I think I want to get into the Netflix model and, and talk about this new era of production for the streaming uh, services where it feels like directors do get a lot more creative control, less restraint, and they don't really get to turn in their career best work. You know, I mean, of all these kind of straight to Netflix films we've seen from prestige directors, there are only a few that are actually really good and only only of a smaller percentage of that that are actually great. Uh, and so sometimes more freedom doesn't mean better. Sometimes your favorite directors need to be reined in and sometimes they need to have the handcuffs on. And sometimes they do need to be slowed down by a studio exec, by an executive producer, by a screening audience who don't like your ending and maybe want something better or different. Um, and then I also want to drive home the point that most films probably do have some sort of studio involvement, including some of their favorite films, but nobody hears about it unless it's a bad situation, such as David Fincher on Alien 3, Josh Trank on Fantastic Four, and kind of talk about that as well. And probably in 90% of the instances of uh, this sort of creative dialogue and butting of heads, there's really no stories unless they're just tumultuous and bad. So I think that's the way I would take this course and how I would look at it in, in a kind of production mindset. Awesome. 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 Thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. So what do you say, Dalton? How would you go about expanding your syllabus? Well, my initial impulse was to uh, look at the entire Alien franchise, uh, all, all the six films, um, you know, the four with Sigourney Weaver and then the uh, two prequel films uh, thus far produced. Uh, probably we're going to end there, I imagine. I don't think they're going to take another uh, run up to bat on that one after Alien Covenant didn't do so hot. And then, you know, uh, movies became a much more dicey proposition, uh, both uh, financially and uh, health safety wise. Uh, so I thought about looking at those six films and primarily it was because I think there are some really interesting connective tissues between uh, this film and uh, Prometheus and Alien Covenant, as uh, we, we alluded to jokingly earlier. But I do think, you know, as Arthur mentioned, Sigourney Weaver's character, Ellen Ripley, has been through uh, about uh, at least six years, but maybe more over the course of these three films. Um, and yeah, it's just one shit show after another. And I, I think there is some really kind of interesting, uh, there, there's an embrace of this idea that she is perpetually caught in hell, uh, that I, I, both visually, uh, and also in the terms of, you know, the religious overtones of alien three, uh, again, really kind of harkening forward, uh, to what Ripley, uh, uh, oh my gosh, uh, Ridley Scott, there we go. <laughs> what Ridley Scott would do when he uh, came back to the franchise several, uh, a couple decades later. Uh, but I decided to scrap that because I do want to talk about David Fincher. And I, uh, you know, this could be a full course or more realistically, it could probably just be uh, a guest lecture in Arthur's class because uh, I think 
you would be hard pressed to find another American filmmaker that you could call uh, the American Gen X auteur um, than, than David Fincher. I think he is kind of the er example of his generation. Um, I mean, I think there's some other guys around his age, or you know, well, I should say guys. There's other people around his age, uh, you know, his contemporaries. But I think in terms of, I guess Tarantino is about the same age as him, so you'd probably go to Tarantino first. But I, I do think Fincher is just very interesting, both in uh, as a uh, celebrity director in general, but, uh, you know, kind of where he falls in the history of cinema. Um, it, it is also interesting to just look at how long careers are um, because, you know, Alien 3, as Arthur said, is deeply troubled as far as productions go. Uh, and uh, Fincher's quoted as saying, nobody hates it uh, more than me. Um, you know, he, he really uh, does not have any love lost on this film, you know, he's uh, apparently fired off of it three times in the two years that he worked on it. And uh, while he did give his blessing on the assembly cut, wanted nothing to do with it and uh, has never seen it. So I think it's interesting to go from that to something like Mank, as Arthur mentioned, you know, Netflix, oh, Mank and Mindhunter uh, being kind of uh, uh, this bastion for Fincher, right? You know, Netflix's whole thing from uh, the time they start producing original content is come on, work with us. We'll give you all the freedom you want. Uh, we'll only give you two seasons, but come work with us. Uh, and and I, I agree with Arthur. I think it is a, a really interesting long view on, on the studio system um, from, you know, the, the birth of Hollywood in, in the early uh, 20th century uh, all the way through to the streaming wars that we're currently uh, undergoing. So I, I think looking at Fincher as a filmmaker gives us a lot to work with, uh, both in terms of uh, what does auteur theory look like in practice, but also uh, deconstructing auteur theory. Uh, Maggie Mayfish has a really great video essay that I'm pretty sure I've referenced on the show before. It's about an hour long uh, over the film Fight Club uh, and kind of teasing out some Fight Club's more uh, fascistic and reactionary uh, political impulses and connecting that to the kind of grandiosity uh, with which the film going culture views guys like Fincher. Um, and I do say guys here on purpose because it really is, I, I think more often than not uh, kind of film bro types uh, for lack of a better way to put it, that get a little bit too excited uh, about auteur theory, which isn't to say it's not useful. You know, uh, I'm, big fan of the show blank check which is you know a, a podcast a film podcast fully structured around you know uh, deconstructing auteur theory uh, and what that looks like but in doing so th th these episodes bring in you know a full two and a half sometimes three hours worth of context to talk about each film and a director's filmography and often that context is talking about all the other people involved uh, and, and i think when you look at fincher's filmography you see his frequent collaborators uh, that sort of stuff becomes really apparent really quickly. Um, and, and I think thematically, uh, what's interesting about Fincher is, as Arthur said, that nihilism is really strong. Uh, you know, it's, it's a current that runs throughout the early half of his filmography. But I think right around uh, the time you get to Benjamin Button, things get a little bit more interesting. And he starts, even with something like Gone Girl, which is, you know, pretty misanthropic in its view of um, the upper middle class and the, and the, you know, the petite bourgeoisie. Um, I don't know. There is, uh, it's, it's damning in a way that feels like it actually has a moral judgment on its mind, if that makes sense. Uh, so again, I, I, this could be a full class. It could be just a, a little, uh, you know, guest lecture in Arthur's. Uh, but I think Alien 3 is really a complicated film to try and bring into a class because it is so bad and kind of deeply uninteresting. Uh, but I think looking at it as part of a, a, a lauded filmmaker's career, whatever that means, I, I think is a really interesting way to kind of tackle it uh, and, and tease out. Like even in a disastrous production like this, if you have a filmmaker that has, you know, a team they like to work with and themes they like to explore, uh, you'll see a lot of uh, recurrences throughout their filmography and throughout their career. Uh, and consider this, you know, I'm very glad we beat uh, Blank Check to uh, Alien 3. Um, consider this my audition tape uh, for being on to talk about Fight Club, because boy, howdy, have I thought about that movie a lot uh, the last 20 some odd years. Dustin, uh, we know you like Fincher. Um, what do you think about uh, teaching this film? Uh, so, how, how does one yeah. even tackle it? So uh, I actually wrote an entire class. So I've got 12 movies. Uh, here for this insane class that I'm going to teach on religious communities in cinema, because that is kind of an interest of Fincher's. 
that you see those things uh, sort of be, I mean, the, the, the group of Fight Club is a religious community. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying. Uh, his name is Robert Paulson. Uh, so uh, with, with its own sort of set of rules and whatnot. And I was thinking about something that's going, you know, from basically the Christian tradition positively represented to the more negative uh, shadow side of Christianity on his worst behavior, moving into the realm of these sort of Christian adjacent cults, and then finally uh, full on out uh, something else uh, in, in practice, paganisms of various sorts, and how they are depicted oftentimes in horror films. And so that's the transitional sort of way in which I'm, I'm beginning with that. And so, and I think Alien 3 is a good example of a pretty positive representation uh, that overwhelmingly, you know, they're a bunch of cons, but they've got their act together and they've got their commitments. And, and, and again, our, our main Dylan character seems to be quite consistent uh, there. And so it is an interesting uh, interplay. Uh, I think it'll play well with one of my other picks uh, within the tradition when I uh, move. But first of all, I go on to the gospel according to St. Matthew by uh, Paolo Pier Pasolini. I mean, how be- better else to think about Jesus of Nazareth and community uh, than a film directed by an Italian Marxist homosexual man? Uh, so those are good selections altogether for that. Uh, moving on to something a little less on the positive side uh, there, but still kind of interesting conversations. Babette's Feast is a great movie about grace uh, that is uh, showing a religious community that sort of lost its plot, and then uh, a religious leader who has entirely lost his own plot in Robert Duvall's The Apostle. Now, from that, then we move into, again, sort of Christian-adjacent kind of stuff. Uh, We might start with uh, the 90s film The Crucible with uh, Daniel Day-Lewis and uh, uh, Winona Ryder. Uh, Then we might look at uh, Red State from Kevin Smith. Uh, Then uh, The Master from Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, You see how the spectrum is sort of moving in a general direction there. And then uh, finally, full out kind of scary, horror, culty kind of things um, as they're put together. Uh, I'm thinking about using... Uh, let's see, I'll make sure I get my list right. Santa Sangre from Alejandro Jordawoski, M. Night Shyamalan's uh, The Village, The Wicker Man, and Midsummer uh, to round the whole thing out. And so that's the class uh, looking at the various representations of religious communities uh, and uh, to show, again, the way in which some, you know, there's there's lots of ways to think about them. Uh, I did think a little bit about the the strange sort of a kind of group of Mandy, but I wasn't quite sure what to do with them and uh, where to place them. I would like to find more positive communities of either uh, religious um, in, a, in a Christian sense or in another religious sense. I, I thought quite a bit about the uh, Southeast Asian film Water, uh, which is about a young woman um, who was uh, um, betrothed to be married to a man and uh, in India. And uh, at age 11 or so, um, she's betrothed. She's not actually married with him, uh, but he dies. And so he, she becomes a widow and has to go to the widow's convent. And uh, so there's a lot of Hindu practice uh, that works alongside with that. And I thought about that movie a little bit, but I'm not quite sure uh, what to do there. But as uh, something outside the Christian tradition, that is a pretty positive representation of uh, those communities, as opposed to the dark and sinister, uh, when, those communi- when those communities sociologically become uh, sick and uh, sort of uh, bent in towards themselves because that's more interesting typically. And so films uh, tend to uh, reside a little bit more there uh, than in the positive and encouraging, unless they make an outside evil like Alien 3, uh, which is one way to get that done. So that's the class, and uh, that's what I'm thinking. Your syllabus just got much longer, my friends. Uh, I guess now it's time to get down to business. Well, Dustin, I know we normally start our uh, our business time discussion where we start really uh, doing analysis on the film. We we, we tend to start with formal considerations, uh, but but I actually had thought about something similar. I, I had thought about uh, for my syllabus either discussing uh, prisons in film or uh, religious orders in film. Either way, looking at close tight knit communities, and it is worth mentioning now we haven't really dug into this too much, uh, but the quote unquote prisoners at Fury One Six One are there by choice. No one there is actually still imprisoned there. They shut the prison down and everyone there um, is there because they, you know, had 
found God while in prison, and they they've chosen to remain. Yeah, their there. sentences have been served at this point, correct? Is that that's my understanding? understanding. Yeah. yeah, they. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Arthur. I, I didn't think that. I thought they pretty clearly addressed that. And again, Charles Dance kind of has a monologue uh, about you know basically here's why everybody's here, and then here's why me and some of these other dudes who are not. Uh, you know, part of the religious order are here. But I, I think it is interesting to center Alien 3 specifically in, in an order of monks, specifically right. an order of, of, of men. Um, because, I, again, outside of the not-so-successful attempts to make some of the subtext of Alien and Aliens explicit, um, I think that's an interesting idea still. I, I do think because, you know, so much of this franchise is about Ripley uh, existing within masculine worlds, right? Um, whether it is space trucking or space marining um, or, or uh, space monking, uh, it, it is often, you know, space is dominated by men that she finds herself in. And so I, I don't, I'm not against the idea of this film. Like I said, I think there are a lot of really good ideas here. There's just no real follow through execution on any of them, unfortunately. And I, I think the closest we get to any real follow through in Alien 3 is Charles S. Dutton's character, Dylan, uh, who, as Dustin said, yeah, it is very consistent in his uh, depiction as far as um, his faith and his, his attempts to, like, stay true to the promises he's made to himself and to uh, help his brothers stay true to the promises they've made to each other. Uh, so I just kind of wanted to tee that up. I don't really have a whole lot to say about it, uh, but Dustin, I, I figured you might be able to speak a little bit more to it. But I, again, I, I'm interested in, at the very least, what they thought might be a good idea for Alien 3. Uh, but there is this sort of general problem, I think, in cinema, and it's something that's addressed that I, you know, I, I heard a bit of it when I was in seminary and doing some theology and uh, media studies stuff there, is that righteousness for the most part, is boring, uh, cinematically speaking, narratively speaking. Uh, doing, you know, doing the right things, uh, being about, you know, a, a set of dogmatic beliefs, that's almost always very dull, right? Uh, think about your very, very orthodox uh, friend or relative that you're going to see at Thanksgiving or uh, have seen the last week ago at Thanksgiving if you have to travel uh, for Thanksgiving or not able to stay home. Uh, obviously, we encourage you to stay safe. For that, but think about that person who uh, always wants to talk to you about the mysteries of this particular doctrine of, say, um, one of the sacraments or of baptism or of the Trinity or whatever. And sure, they're probably sound and rational, and probably all the proofs are all there for whatever it is they're saying about whatever it is they believe. But isn't it just exhaustingly boring? I mean, just desperately. Like, is there not anything else to talk about? And uh, I think there's that. And then doing the right thing. You know, you do the right thing. Well, you know, that's not particularly cinematically interesting uh, as opposed to doing the wrong thing. And so the only way you can get that done, and I think this is where our space monks come in well, is if you pit that group against an outside stressor. Uh, you pit that group against something that's going to cause a real dramatic problem that's going to cause crises of faith or crises of action. And in that sense, I think Alien 3 does work because what you see is what begins to challenge this community. What, first of all, the temptation, just uh, pro the provision of a woman in this all-male community uh, provides a some sense of temptation. Again, we have some scenes um, that are maybe a bit um, hard to watch and uh, worthy of trigger warnings uh, for that. But also just the idea of the alien monster. And what do we do? How do we live courageously, bravely, faithfully, you know, for one another? And Dylan's character sort of helps us negotiate some of that. And so I think that's real valuable and uh, a valid thing there. But it's hard to do that because you can't have every time a religious community, you've got a monster that, to chase them around or, uh, you know, yeah. the new kid showing up. I mean, that that also gets boring because it becomes so conventional. Well, but with it being the alien, yeah, it's a little bit more interesting that way. I think it. I, I do want to jump in, Dustin, and say I, I think it is interesting uh, that first section of the movie where the outside stressor is just the existence of Ellen Ripley in this community, and you know the film doesn't you know deal explicitly with anything like gaslighting or anything like that, but there is this interesting psychological tension throughout the first half. Well, basically until Charles Dance gets uh, skull pumped uh, by the uh, the alien. Um, 
it, it's it is this kind of interesting what's going on am i am have i finally lost my marbles am i in hell uh, are these dudes you know going to be chill um how calm can i be is it weird that i made everybody do an autopsy on my surrogate child uh, like th- these are interesting considerations in the first half of the movie that all you know do end up with ellen ripley committing this uh that was self-sacrificial act, right? For these, uh, you know, these Christian aesthetic. What's the word I'm looking for? Not aesthetics, Dustin, but a- aesthetic. How do you pronounce the word I'm thinking of? Uh, a- uh, I know. As, well, as, as um, aesthetics. Um, Aesth- yeah. yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah, a weird a- word. Aesthetics. 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 Yeah. A a c e s t i c s. Aesthetics. This is the trouble with uh, obscure words that you only ever see in writing and very rarely uh, hear said aloud. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I think the choice. Again, it's a pretty basic choice to have Ellen Ripley kind of, uh, you know, commit this self-sacrificial act very much in a, a Christ-like pose of sorts. With the cross uh, and all that. Yeah. I got to talk it's... about the Mandela effect for a second with this. And maybe this okay. is in the different cuts. Do we see not uh, the alien chest burst normally out of her chest as she's falling into the the fire of the, the pit when she's doing her self-sacrificial fall? You know, Dustin, I I watched the assembly cut. I didn't get to the sacrificial fall in the uh, theatrical cut, but I feel like I also remember that. Did, was that not in the cut that you watched? It was not in the cut that I watched. What? Interesting. The chest burst so, in the fall? I, yeah, the chest burst in the fall, yeah. That was there. Not in the cut I saw. So, Yeah. I, and I watched watched it. It. Wait a minute. I remember this being different. And I was like, is this the Mandela effect? Am I just creating this? No, but as she's falling, the, the thing bursts out and she like drags it into the fire with her. Okay. Well, okay. So there is a difference between the cuts. So whichever version I saw is the one that doesn't have that. Did you watch one that was th- almost three hours long? Or did you watch one that was two hours long? <laughs> I watched one that was two hours and 44 minutes long. That's the assembly uh, cut. It's, 20, it's 24 minutes. You did watch the assembly cut along with me there, Pops. I guess so Oops, yeah that, that's interesting though that the assembly cut kind of goes for the more uh subtle <laughs> uh choice there uh so interesting uh yeah that's weird yeah um, okay sorry but, no no it's, it's an interesting difference between the cuts like i said i watched m- most excuse me uh Sorry, microphone. Uh, I watched most of the theatrical cut, but I uh, I didn't get all the way to the end. But I, I do remember that. So, Arthur, thank you for uh, confirming to Dustin that he had not created a parallel uh, reality with a different Alien Three. That's why I'm here doing, you know, watching the assigned homework, as, as stated. <laughs> <laughs> the movie is what we assigned. I just found a version of the movie and I watched it. <laughs> well, no wonder you. Uh, no wonder you thought the uh, first act or so was a little long. In the suit, <laughs> yeah, it definitely yeah. is. Uh, yeah, I do like the uh, bit. Speaking of the assembly cuts, since I'm not the only one that watched it, I do want to bring up really quickly. Uh, and this film, and this does feel like some Fincher bugaboos. This film is full of some really uh, not so subtle sexual imagery: uh, syringes puncturing vials and veins. Uh, the, oh, yeah. uh, and well, and Dustin, since you saw the assembly cut, not the theatrical, you also saw the. Um, well, I don't really know how to talk about it without getting too blue. So let's just say the scene where uh, the uh, the buffalo gives birth to the uh, to the chest burster mm-hmm. is um, well, yeah. I mean, it, it looks like it's given birth. You know, <laughs> it's, it's a weird choice there, David. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's gross. Big swings are being made uh, throughout this film, and uh, I, again, I, I think because uh, we are talking about the. Uh, you know, the self-denying nature of these monks. It is interesting for the film to hew so far into the kind of uh, overt uh, sexual subtext of the franchise. Because, like, again, this is nothing new, right? Like, there's a – I mean, that's H.R. Uh, Giger's whole whole kink, man. Like, yeah. the xenomorph is supposed to look like a phallus. Like, yeah. this, that's the thing. Right. It, it is I was a, thinking something, though, about that. Um, with the, the sexual subtext being so strong in this one, and of course, it's been ongoing in the whole franchise as a sort of a metaphor for rape and for uh, you know a sort of a forcible, you know, sexual congress and and, and all of that, uh, and and this sort of strongly Freudian piece to those films, right? Mm. Uh, especially the first film. Uh, and I was thinking about the Frankfurt School quite a bit, weirdly enough, like one does. Uh, when one watches a action horror 
sci-fi uh, film with Sigourney Weaver in it. Um, you think, of course, of Theodore Adorno. No. Uh, but I was thinking about merging um, psychoanalysis and Marx and how the, the, this film, uh, like Aliens, the second film in the series, does a lot more to dive into the sort of duplicitous, exploitative nature of the company uh, Wayland Yutani, yeah, and how that desire itself, you know, and I, I was thinking about Zizek and the idea of a, a sublime object of of uh, uh, of desire of of production, and uh, and I was I was just thinking, you know, there's a way in which it doesn't successfully do that, but both ideas are present at the same time. And I don't think we have a real sort of dialectical kind of synthesis. Where we put together desire and it, it, you know, clearly the alien itself functions like it, and then the clearly the alien is also a commodity, right? A sublime object of desire, you know, it, it, it's those things as well. But it doesn't quite mesh those ideas by placing them in different characters. But when Ripley starts talking about, you know, it's in the basement, and and eighty five is like, well, this whole place is a basement, and she says it's a metaphor, which is a little on the nose for my money, but. <laughs> That being said, I, I, I thought there is thematically something interesting going on there where you're mixing up that sort of psychoanalytical id, libidinal desire stuff with something like a capitalist profit motive. And uh, I don't know if there's anything more to be said about it than that, other than it is in some senses, and I think the Frankfurt School is unsuccessful as well, but um, an attempt at at least gesturing towards something like the Frankfurt School. Well, it's it's interesting, I guess, insofar as that uh, numerically speaking, the uh, the workers, I guess, for lack of a better word, at Fury One Six One, I have the power, right? You mean the, the company, slaves. Well, yes. the The company presence there is two dudes plus a medical officer who also used to be a prisoner there. Uh, so, really, I, I mean, it is it is our prisoners who. Again, it is an interesting setup for a film, just the idea of prisoners who have chosen to remain in confinement for whatever reason. Um, that's a good hook for a movie, even if it doesn't have, you know, an alien in it. Um, but but it does kind of introduce an interesting power dynamic that really nothing ever much is done with, as you've yeah. sort of pointed out already, Dustin. Um, I, there's I think, a Marxist critique there, but they just don't mm -hmm. ever do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the only real thing that there is, and it, this kind of lines up well just with some research I was doing today uh, with the, the phenomenon of elite panic. Um, so the, there's uh, the sociologists, Karen Chess and Lee Clark uh, from Rutgers in, in 2008 um, put out this uh, – this article that uh, well not article is uh, peer-reviewed uh work uh called elites and panic more to fear than fear itself and, and it just kind of tracks basically all of the times throughout history where you can see in disasters and I, I think the film does get at this pretty well the impulse within a community is towards mutual aid right uh, mm -hmm. no matter how much we try to convince ourselves that the world is getting more dangerous uh and more violent evidence uh you know, actual measurable evidence uh, tells us the opposite. You know, we, we are not constantly solving our issues with brawls uh, as we often were, were want to do in the, the late 19th century. Um, but it is the elites that assume uh, the rest of us will devolve into lawlessness without them around. Right. And, and so we do get a little bit of that here just insofar as there, there is tension among Ripley and, and the, the inmates, uh, the monks, uh, the in monks, uh, but that tension's, <laughs> that tension's resolved fairly quickly, right? It is only through uh, 885, which is a very mean nickname. Um, you know, it's it's only through the the desire to get the company there, and of course, you know, Ripley does bait them a little bit with a, a very interesting computer message, which I think is great a great bit in the film. Uh, is, is just her knowing what will get the company there. Um, but, you know, the, the company is always, uh, Wayland yutani is always trying to control this uncontrollable thing, uh, thinking that it, they alone will be able to know what to do with it and what should be done with it. Um, so, again, I, I, you know, th there's always been this, you know, Marxist tension running throughout the franchise, uh, especially when, you know, the first two films are about laborers, um, you know, be they military or civilian, they are about the, the grunts. They are about people who do hard work uh, for very little pay and likely and are likely to die doing their job. Um, so it, it's always been an interesting franchise from that perspective. Um, 
but but again, there's there's never a, a much depth to that analysis, and it, you know, obviously, it's a horror film. There doesn't need to be, uh, but you always do. I always find myself wanting for more, uh, and, and that is maybe one of the good things about Alien Three uh, is that it's maybe the one that talks the most about Wayland Utani, and it's just because you know the groundwork of the previous entries in the franchise, you know, do a lot of legwork for them. Um, it's kind of the, the first film, I guess Burke and alien with a dollar sign um, is uh, is a villain as much as the xenomorphs, but not really, not the way that I, I feel like Waylon Yutani is the true villain of this film in some ways. Am I, am I making sense? Have I lost the plot? No, not at all. Not at all. I, I feel exactly the same kind of way. I, I get, I do think uh, again, stepping up to prisoners who are slaves you know, also increases that sort of Marxist tension moving from truckers to the military, you know, to, to uh, the degrees of exploitation in the film uh, franchise through the first three entries does seem to increase mm-hmm. there uh, in terms of Marxist critique. And I want to just name that uh, uh, there because those guys are working that foundry. They're working it for no wages, uh, you know, initially. And then they they love it so much that they want to stay. It's like the slave ma- the slaves who stay on the plantation. Uh, there's something, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. about that. The more research you do on that, the more you find out. Eh, no, it's it's usually because uh, of you know financial slavery of a sort, right? right? It's it's you know through company script or uh, debt, you know these sorts of things that, that we still see people being controlled through today. Yeah. Um, but then combining that with that sort of psychoanalytical thing about uh, the way in which, again, a company does desire a thing and uh, at the expense of, you know, you know, its customers and its employees and, uh, you know, that the way that exploitation plays out there, I think is fascinating. And to think about the uh, to think about the xenomorph as the id, as the murderous, um, you know, uh, you know. Uh, it either it either it either wants to bone you or it wants to kill you, you know. And mm-hmm. that's you know, there's something there's something to that. We've all been sure, there. And I think, yeah. yeah, if you want to tease that out further, right? You could probably say that uh, the company is the ego, um, and uh, you know the uh, the workers throughout the franchise are the super ego, right? If you really want to try yeah. to like tease that analogy all the way out, I mean, I think that there's some there there, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, a Ripley's super ego, right? Uh, with, with contamination protocols, we can't let you in. Yeah, right? exactly. In the very first film, yeah, and uh, throughout, this is what we got to do to take care of the business. Yeah. Well, and again, Charles uh, Dutton's character Dylan uh, in this film, right, is getting to function in that capacity for quite a bit. He he is just trying to keep the peace, uh, and you know, sometimes that's giving a, a really stirring eulogy at a funeral, and sometimes that's you know. Uh, trying to be intimidating because he doesn't know how to interact with a, a woman because he hasn't seen one in quite some time. Uh, I do love right. that moment where uh, Sigourney Weaver gets to uh, whatever boys, uh, everyone, like, I'm not afraid of you guys. <laughs> I, I couldn't be less afraid of you. <laughs> Is There's some really great beats uh, that she gets to have in, in those early scenes with the, the inmates that, again, I think are some of the moments in the film that do really work because I think that that gender tension is an interesting direction to take this franchise. It just isn't really successfully executed here. Right. Um, do we want to talk about, I, again, we've talked about the religious uh, religiosity a little bit already, but I, I am kind of interested in um, religious practice uh, as a pathway towards redemption, right? I mean, it is not uncommon uh, in, in, in prison narratives, both real and imagined, uh, for spiritual practice to enter somebody's life, uh, either for the first time or to reenter their life. Um, and, you know, I, I think a lot of that has to do with the religious tradition of this country, uh, primarily being Christianity. Uh, and I think when you have a story about a dude being, you know, jailed and murdered uh, by the government, I, I think that tends to speak to people who are on, uh, you know, death row and, or other forms of incarceration. <laughs> Um, so I'm just again, I, I don't have a, an, another topic. I don't have a whole lot of there there for yet, but just something I, I thought we could maybe discuss. Well, I do think uh, you know there are two ultimate sacrifices made in the film. You know, we talk about Sigourney Weaver's you know fall from the uh, scaffolding uh, in a cruciform shape, you know, like Jesus of Nazareth. But the only reason why she's able to get to that place is because mm-hmm. the way in which they got the alien the first time in the lead before they had to put the water on to crack it. Right. And yeah. uh, and that was by Charles Dutton basically wrapping the thing up long enough to hold it under the lead. Uh, is that all you bite, motherfucker, by the way, is an incredible line. Speaking there. of that. moment, and, Yeah, I, I love I love that bit. 
Uh, and it's a, it's a powerful moment. And uh, it's also powerful in, in, in uh, I guess, in contrast to a moment slightly earlier in the film where Sigourney Weaver's Ripley asks him to kill her because she's carrying um, the embryo, right, of the alien creature. And he won't do that. And uh, she calls him a coward. And uh, he, you know, I, I think it's an interesting twist in the arc there uh, for yeah. that character. You know, I well, won't commit a murder unless it's my, of myself, right? I think it's just a great, I, I don't know, I, you know, Charles Dance getting axed early on definitely feels like a real, ah, we've entered act two moment, right? Like it services the plot. But her, her relationship with Dylan, I, I think, is one that is really interesting, other again, than the, the misstep scene that we've talked about a lot. You know, I, I don't, mm-hmm. I think that that needlessly simplifies the relationship between those two characters when I think it, it's honestly be- the film's better served by letting that rema- relationship remain complex. Uh, but you're absolutely right. The, the scene where he's like, no, I'm not a coward. You just promised to help us deal with this and I'm not going to let you off the hook. <laughs> like right. I get what you've been through. We're all going through it right now. And you're literally the only person who's qualified to help us. Uh, so no, you don't get to punch out uh, early, not on this one. Yeah, if, if you're going to do it, you're going to do it yourself. I'm not helping you. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I am here to try and, like, stop this thing from getting out uh, and, and you know, to, to go out with a bang. I, I am not going out with a whimper, uh, which, you know, I, I believe he's got another moment in the film where he kind of alludes to that same sort of idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know that there's a whole lot else to be said about Alien 3, uh, at least for my money. Uh, Dustin, you, you got anything that is burning R3? You got anything that you got to say? We gotta quit letting dudes direct feminist icon films. When a, when a, when a dude makes by accident, and I'm telling you right now, Ridley Scott accidentally produced a feminist icon film with the first film. At some point, you've got to realize you've got to stop letting dudes direct because they're going to fumble it, mm. and that's what we get. Yeah, yeah, it's just in our nature to, uh, uh, uh you know. Uh, us masculine types, I think we have a tendency when we want to explore gender in a story, um, or you know, even when we're just talking about, it, we have a tendency to fixate on the the dumbest, most obvious shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and I think that's what this movie does. You know, for better, uh, well, no, not for better, mostly entirely for worse. It, it just it gets really close to doing something interesting and then focuses on the wrong part of what it was saying. Yeah, I agreed. So in that case, uh, let's render a verdict then. Uh, shelf for trash is what we want to say for Alien 3. I go to you first, Arthur. What do you say? Shelf for trash. Yeah, this is a pretty easy trash for me. Uh, yeah. Trash. Trash. All right, fair enough. What do you say, Dalton? Yeah, I'm right there with Arthur. This doesn't take a whole lot of thinking. It's trash. I'm going to say if you buy the box set quadrilogy, go ahead and do that. <laughs> Yeah, but you know, if, it you're, come, not, if it you're not getting three it. other movies with this, then don't buy it. <laughs> Only buy it if it comes with three other movies. In which case, yes, you should shelf it. Well, and but then in that case, by itself, it'll, no. It'll also come with the documentary about the making of this film, which I'm sure is far more interesting than you know the movie itself. <laughs> Probably. So, uh, well, there you go. All right, well, those are our thoughts there on Alien Cubed. Uh, we'd like to hear your thoughts back at us, and you do that via social media. Dolphin, say the words. Yeah, that's right. Enough of this sociological drivel. Let's make some ducats, shall we? Uh, folks, if you want to talk to us some more, uh, you can go to uh, twitter.com, uh, at good underscore trash. That's everything good trash media. Uh, all, the, all the links to all the shows that are coming out. Um, look, it's, it's hard times out there, what with all the, the plague um, I, I would uh, urge you uh, to not go see that uh, overly dogmatic family member Dustin was alluding to earlier. This is a great excuse to blow them off for at least another three to five months. Uh, and, you know, that's being pretty generous. Uh, yeah, stay home. Uh, hang out with your pets and your loved uh, your, your lover. I don't know who you live with. Uh, and then, you know, tweet at us, at good underscore trash. Our podcasts are up. And again, I, I just mentioned the times are tough because, you know, uh, we've got a couple of shows here on the network uh, like uh, – uh, the Wheel of Randy with Dan Wade. That one's on hiatus right now. And uh, the Praise Down is still churning them out. But, you know, it's hard to get organized sometimes with everything that's going on these days. But rest assured, if something good trash related is there to be listened to, you can find it at good underscore trash on Twitter, uh, along with 
you know, fun games and tweets uh, if Arthur or I are in the mood for a post or, you know, just sharing fun stuff that people we know made. Uh, we like to think we're a good follow. If you've got long-form feedback for us, uh, if we're totally wrong and Alien 3 is a misunderstood masterpiece, uh, bad CGI and all, um, or if, you know, you worked on Alien 3 and want to yell at me about how I don't actually know anything about uh, CGI composition, uh, that's goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. I'll, I'll read it on the show. I'm into it. Let's do it. I like I like feedback. Uh, you can also go to patreon.com forward slash GTM for all kinds of, uh, well, not all kinds. It's mostly the one kind. Look, Dustin and I uh, play a tabletop game with Arthur, and we have a lot of fun doing it. Uh, but there's other bonus content from over the years. Our Patreon has been active for quite some time. Um, so there's lots of other bonus content over there, including uh, a full link. Actually, no, I'm Wait, no, yeah, you have to be a Patreon yeah. subscriber to get to that juicy, juicy feature-length commentary we did on the original Alien uh, with former co-host Alexandra Bohannon uh, and then, of course, uh, Dustin Arthur and myself. Uh, so, you know, if you enjoyed Alien 3 and just want to hear uh, the, all of us talk about uh, an Alien film we like a whole lot and just kind of geek out about uh, what a good movie it is, you can just do that. I think it's a dollar to get access to that one. Yeah jump on in patreon.com forward slash gtm there's fun bonuses to be had both auditory and uh, you know some deliverables uh that's it that's social media i don't think i have anything else to say uh, arthur what comes next uh for us on part three's part d uh that's right part three's chapter two continues next week as uh we stay in space uh for some odd reason didn't even think that one through Anyway, we're going to be taking a look at Justin Lin's uh, third part in the other franchise he was involved in, Star Trek Beyond. Nice. So there That's you right. go, your listeners. Star Trek's coming up next. So you keep watching. You, we'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time.